This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hello, and thank you for joining us today on this episode of East Lansing Insider, brought to you by East Lansing Info and Impact Radio. My name is Emily Joan Elliott, and I'm the managing editor of East Lansing Info. Today, I have with me Andrew Graham and Alice Drager, and I'll let you both introduce yourselves briefly. Alice, you first. first. (laughs) Oh, you first. All right. I'm Andrew Graham. I'm, as Emily said, I'm a reporter. I'm also our sports guy currently at Eli, and I'm sitting here at my my desk, my new desk that I made for myself. I feel like Dwight Schrute with Superdesk, so pretty content. Are you growing beets, too? Um. I could, but not <laughs> not currently. And I'm Alice Drager. I'm the executive director and publisher of EastLansingInfo.News. And I, like Andrew and Emily, I also do reporting for Eli. So um, that's why I'm here today. Yes. And today we're going to talk about some of our favorite reporting that we do, which is our Ask Eli section. So Ask Eli is a space where our readers could write into us through our contact form submission on our website at eastlansinginfo.news and submit different questions or concerns that they have about things that they see about town and East Lansing. And we also answer questions that we receive through Twitter and Facebook as well. To date, so far from January 1st, uh, 2021 to the present, We have 137 questions, and we've answered 120 so far. There's been 262 calendar days so far this year, so that gives you an idea of how many questions we're getting. So we thought we'd go around and discuss some of the questions we received from readers recently. So Andrew, I'm going to let you jump into this first. Gotcha. I I would assume the, the first subject I'm covering is flooding, and I don't have a specific question in front of me, but we've received... A number of inquiries, particularly recently, about this issue, particularly following the August 12th floods. Um, do you have a question in front of you, Emily, that I can sort of dive into? Because there's a there's a bunch of points I could I could start off here. Well, I know that we have had probably over a dozen questions about flooding, but I thought maybe you could share some of what you found out most recently. Yeah, so. I have, in particular, been talking to some residents along Timber Lane, which is right on the edge of town, basically right next to Meridian Township. And the it's worth noting here that the sewer is jointly operated between the East Lansing Meridian Water Authority and each municipality has their own public works department. So they're right on the edge. And basically what I've been learning about their experiences from on August 12th, they had sewer backups into their basement, like so many other people in the city and have not been able to get any help beyond from themselves, their neighbors and whatever minimal coverage from their homeowner's insurance, which for most of them has just been for the basic restoration service they called in and, you know, redoing flooring at best. And they've kind of been, you know, I've, I've used the term hot potato a little bit of, neither municipalities willing to take any be on the hook really for any of it and they're just going further down the road the the people on Timberlane of trying to not have this happen again which is pretty much where most people in the city are and then we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon September 21st and they had a meeting some of those residents with 
Nicole McPherson from the city of East Lansing. She's the, the interim or temporary head of the department of public works and folks from Meridian township where they came out and met. And the, the gist of the report I got back was that they were just kind of talking in circles and not no real progress was made on what can be done and what happened there. And residents are still feeling pretty much where they were before the meeting. So that's the that's sort of the specifics. I'll have a story on eastlansinginfo.news at some point about this in the, the near future, I'm sure. In some ways, this story is starting to remind me of the big BWL outage of 2013-14, where people really feel like they're falling between the cracks in terms of getting basic service. So I think this is going to continue to be a big issue for us as we go forward. And just in talking about the flooding, I think it also brings up with our focus on Ask Eli, Ask Eli sometimes it also becomes Tell Eli. When people in the community think they can contribute to our reporting, they send what information they've had. And we've received videos and pictures. And I think like a 67 page study to residents conducted about what had happened with the flooding. Yeah, it's a good conduit of information. Very cool. In a way, we've been flooded with information about the flooding, but we appreciate people contributing all that. So, Emily, you got a question about um, construction ongoing on Bircham Drive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, the construction is actually going to start on Abbott Road and conclude at Timber Lane. So Timber Lane's getting a lot of attention today. Um, So this is construction that has been planned for, and it's part of the MDOT, which is Michigan Department of Transportation Local Agency Program. And the start date is supposed to be spring of 2022. And the street will be dug up for resurfacing and pedestrian islands will be added for crossing Bircham because on Bircham, you have East Lansing High School, you have Marble Elementary, and you have McDonald's Middle School as well. So it'll make it safer for kids walking to school is the idea and also encourage cars to drive a bit slower when those islands are there, I believe are two of the intentions behind it. Andrew first covered this story. I think it was in over the summer. I won't put myself on the spot and say what month, but it came up at a transportation commission meeting because there were concerns about high school students navigating the construction um, to get to East Lansing High School and their young drivers without as much experience. Um, So we reached out to the city. Michael Fry, the communications coordinator, confirmed and explained what the construction will entail. Alice, I'll let you jump into what Ask Eli's you've been covering recently. Yeah, this is one of those ones, like you mentioned, Emily, that came in not as a question, but as information. So this Friday, September 24th, there's going to be the dedication of the renaming of the Pinecrest Elementary School to the Robert L. Green uh, Elementary School, honoring Dr. Green, who was a great civil rights leader and somebody who uh, was one of the first Black families, he and his wife, to buy a house in East Lansing, where there was a lot of housing discrimination that occurred. And they bought a house in in the 1960s. On Friday morning, there's going to be the dedication and there's going to be a march to that house on Bessemer Drive to basically um, recognize a new historic district marker or a new historic marker on that house. And relative to that, somebody wrote into us anonymously to say that they understood that the Greens were not actually the first um, African-American couple to purchase a house in the city of East Lansing. 
that in fact, Dr. John Porter and his wife Lois had purchased a house in 1961, in July of 1961 in East Lansing and had in fact likely been either the first or at least they were earlier than the Greens. And so this was pretty exciting to me. Um, what the staff, my staff may not know is I dropped out of college at 19 and became a mortgage broker. So I'm kind of a geek for real estate research in particular. And so I didn't get from this anonymous um, tipster what the address of this property was. So that made it challenging. But I contacted the East Lansing Public Library and asked them if they had a directory from 1962 of residents. And if so, could they look up John Porter and Lois Porter and tell me where they lived? And the answer was they lived at 1551 Snyder, which is just on the east side of Hagedorn Road, kind of near Marble. And then I contacted lawyers that I know who have access easily online to deed and mortgage records, and they sent me the deed and the mortgage. And indeed, it's true. The Porters bought a house in July 1961 at 1551 Snyder um, in East Lansing, and it was in the city of East Lansing at that time. We thought it might not have yet been part of the city, but it was. And they got a mortgage from the East Lansing Savings and Loan to buy that house. So that was kind of exciting. So Dr. Porter earned his PhD in education at Michigan State University, and he ultimately moved on to become the first African-American superintendent at the state level. So he was the superintendent of education for the state of Michigan. And then later in his career, he became the president of Eastern Michigan University. And he's widely recognized as having been a major leader in educational work and civil rights work in the United States. So there is a lot of really rich civil rights history here in East Lansing. He also was a member, um, we found out from clippings, of the East Lansing Human Rights Commission, which at the time was struggling with this issue. And East Lansing did not pass an anti-discrimination housing ordinance until after the death of Martin Luther King. So it took a lot of years before that finally happened. So that was exciting to me to find out. The other thing we found out from a reader who wrote into us at Facebook was that she had gone to school at Red Cedar Elementary early, um, again, earlier than the Greens purchased the house. And she had gone to school with a girl who was an African-American girl whose father was a faculty member at MSU, which did not surprise me that much because MSU had faculty housing, including a Cherry Lane. And um, MSU made a point of having to provide some of that housing in part because of the discrimination that occurred in East Lansing. And we have an old piece up from Bill Kastner at East Lansing Info which is about that housing discrimination and the way that John Hanna didn't really confront it directly. He confronted it in a roundabout way by basically using surrogates to help buy houses. So we've learned a lot now about this. And and our own Alex Hosey, who's been a reporter for East Lansing Info, is the person who kind of brought it to city council years ago. So I'm excited because as a historian and as somebody who's into real estate (laughs) research, I'm excited to be with the help of our Eli readers finding out this great history of East Lansing. Yes, Alice and I were nerding out about this this morning because we're I'm also a historian, although I was never in real estate. But it was great how the city came together to honor the achievements of Dr. Green. And then our readers have helped us uncover this other rich history that we didn't know as much about. Yeah, it's super exciting. Well, I'm a, I'll... I minored in European history. <laughs> you could join the club, Andrew. <laughs> Cool. Um, I'm I'm up now, aren't I? Yes. So we awesome. have gotten interest in what is happening with the Montgomery Drain Project, and I think we might be still looking into what's happening right now. But can you tell our listeners what the Montgomery Drain Project is? Yes. So the simplest answer I can give is it's a place where a bunch of water from 
the surrounding areas drains back into the environment and the the watershed this is if this is it sort of being evocative of fourth grade science it this is where we're at but it's it's a big project that is under the purview of the Ingham County Drain Commissioner and it it's mostly servicing I can look at it areas of the city of Lansing there's a small overlap on some very western portions of the city of East Lansing but the the idea is by these improvements to the drain which is a sort of I don't have a, a strict technical definition but it's a it's a big field it's I think almost like a retaining pond kind of thing but it's a place where the water drains out and gets back into the environment and the improvements that are going on in this project supposedly will help the flow of water out and there was a lot of flooding with the recent rains in Frandor concurrent with the city of East Lansing. Supposedly all of this water will be alleviated to some extent, and be able to flow out with the improvements to the Montgomery drain. And that theoretically will also impact parts of East Lansing. Now, this also is an expensive project, which is not necessarily surprising given the, the scale of earth moving and just general work being done. Um, and most of the bill is being footed by the city of Lansing, but the city of East Lansing is paying. I, I'm not going to put myself on the spot, a la Emily, give an exact figure, but it is some millions of dollars, I believe, at this point. But that's the broad overview of what the Montgomery drain is and what the, the project going on there currently is and intended to do. I think when I looked it up, it's something like $100,000 a year directly into it for something like 30 years. Yeah. So if you've seen trees recently cut down in front of University Edge near Frandor in the median, that's because of this. And we got word, actually, that Nicole McPherson, who's the current head of Department of Public Works for East Lansing, actually insisted that they cut down as few trees as possible because uh, they're, they've been cutting down a lot of trees for this project. And uh, people down there are feeling the pain in terms of the removal of a great number of trees for this project. I feel like you could write a whole, like you could maintain a whole publication in East Lansing writing only about trees and you'd have a readership. Well, it is a tree city. So I think that's true. Uh, yes, we've. I appreciate that. We've covered multiple Ask Eli's that have dealt with the tree canopy writ large in the city and also the specific trees outside the East Lansing Public Library. Also in various other parts of the city where people wrote in at Stoddard Park about a year ago, people asking who removed all those trees along the Northern Tier Trail, a whole section of trees removed. So if you've got those kind of questions, send them in to us. We can pretty easily find out the answers from the city and bring it forward. So Emily, you had a question come in about school buses. Yeah. So this one originated from chatter that we saw on Facebook about busing with East Lansing Public Schools. So the issue had been that the pickup times were constantly changing and sometimes students were waiting because they had one route was supposed to be run and then the same bus driver was coming and doing a second route. So readers were interested in knowing what was going on. So I reached out to Superintendent Dory Lyko to ask what was going on with the busage and she did confirm that there is an issue with a shortage of bus drivers from Dean Transportation. Um, this district has 12 routes that it runs each morning and each afternoon. And typically on an average day, the district is short one to two bus drivers. Superintendent Lyko suggested that I reach out to Dean Transportation for the specifics of how they're trying to recruit workers. And I did call them this morning and they immediately called me back and have forwarded on my questions 
to the powers that be. So we're awaiting specifics, but I did find out on their website that they are offering sign-on bonuses for people who have a CDL license, which is you need to drive a bus. And for those that don't, they'll get a smaller bonus, but they'll also get the training. Um, But training takes time. So there's an issue now of Dean hiring bus drivers, but they might not be ready for several weeks or a month to take over these routes. So according to Superintendent Lyco, you have um, some of the administrative staff at Dean are now driving some of the bus routes. And there's also problem solving by having some drivers complete their regular routes and then circle about to run an uncovered route or a portion of an uncovered route. And the district is also meeting with CADA to discuss opportunities to partner with them. It's possible the district could give CADA passes to students who might be on a bus route that could bring them to school. But there is a shortage. Um, My understanding is it's not limited to East Lansing or Michigan. It's a national issue, um, but it's one that is affecting us locally. So I'll take the next question, which is, um, we had a reader write in and ask a question for which I need to give some background. But basically, the question was, if there's this new um, income restricted affordable housing apartment building going in near Valley Court Park and Helping Hands Respite Care, which is in the community center, needs new space. Why don't they make space in that new building that's going to be near the park for the Helping Hands Respite Care? And just to give people a little background, Helping Hands Respite Care does tremendous service for the community, basically provides um, a way to help take care of adults with disabilities in order to give their families uh, time downtime. And so they provide a really critical service to the community. And the city of East Lansing has assisted Helping Hands Respite by basically giving them a super discounted rent at the community center. But the community center in East Lansing, which is that low single story building that you see if you go to the farmer's market, is in terrible condition. So the simple answer is that Helping Hands Respite Care is a nonprofit charity. And the building they're currently in is a public building. And the building that's about to be built as an apartment building next to Valley Court Park at the address of 341 Evergreen Avenue is a private building. And the reason that building is getting constructed is because these developers out of Chicago, DRW Convexity, got a deal with the city to build the Abbott apartment complex, which is that big, tall apartment complex at the corner of Abbott and Grand River. And the hotel next to it, the Graduate Hotel, and under the law, which is a law in East Lansing called Ordinance 1384, when they build a big housing project like this, 25% of the units have to be specially designed so that they will attract a non-student population. This is an attempt to diversify housing downtown. So 25% have to be income restricted, so low to moderate income folks can have access to that housing, or it has to be for people age 55 and up, so senior housing, or it has to be something that can be owner-occupied, like a condominium apartments. And DRW Convexity chose the first option of doing low to moderate income housing. So they've designed a six-story building that will have 99 apartments. Of those, I think 24 are actually market rate apartments, but the rest will be restricted to people who are making 80% or less of the median area income. So that people will have to fill out special forms and show proof of the limitation of their income to get rental uh, apartments in that building. And they're actually being specially designed for families, which is pretty exciting because we do not have a lot of uh, moderate income housing available for families, especially for folks who want to come into the school district. So that's exciting. A lot of people 
So the bottom line is DRW Convexity is not building a building that is meant to be a public service building. They're really building a building for profit. And it's part of this larger development. And that was simply not part of what got built in. So Helping Hands is going to be in this somewhat challenging position. And the city's trying to figure out what can be done in the Valley Court area to help them, but also to just sort of reinvigorate the Valley Court area. Great. Well, thank you for that update, Alice. And I'm going to pivot again to Andrew. As he said at the beginning, he's our sports guy. And we recently received a question that was a comment broadly about journalism and social media about boys sports and boys accomplishments in high school sports getting more time and coverage than, you know, the girl athletes. So Andrew, I know you've worked very hard for equity in sports coverage. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you've approached that in the different sports you've covered. Yeah. So for me, it's part of it is how Eli goes about funding itself and doing journalism in East Lansing is our, where it's not advertiser based. It's not clicks based. It's not, you know, our success is not inherently dependent on how many eyes are on something, how many people are interacting with somebody, which means there's less of a direct tie between what we maybe write about and what we can extract out of that in terms of ad dollars. So not to get too deep in the weeds about journalism, but what that means is a, a bigger newspaper that, that functions on ad buys and subscriptions and stuff like that is going to cover what gets them the most clicks, what gets them the most reads, what has more people coming to the table, which is going to be high school football and boys basketball generally. And for us at Eli, and this is something that I really appreciate about working at Eli, is we benefit just as much from writing about a star athlete on any team or a star athlete on on girls cross country, boys cross country, boys lacrosse, volleyball. It doesn't It doesn't really matter because I'm not, we're not covering it to, you know, we need to make enough money so we can keep doing this, but it's more I'm covering this because it matters to this person and it matters to their parents, their siblings, their friends, whatever. But it's just understanding that the tie for me and the tie for us is how we sort of approach it as a publication is just highlighting the achievement because it's an achievement worth highlighting. And it, it really it sort of strips away the editorial or it's sort of solely editorial and it's not about any business side of things. And I can just go, hey, this person's a star and write about that whoever they are, which I think is great because it means I can write about the girls and the boys track team last spring, for instance, when both of them were excellent, which is cool. And that's not always the case everywhere. And that's definitely a fortunate aspect of this job for me. And we try on the editorial side to keep an eye on these kinds of things. So Emily and I very specifically gave Andrew instructions, although he's already in this direction, of making sure we had gender equity in terms of our sports coverage, because it is really important for us to be reflective of the community. So one of the things we love that people help us with is weighing in and letting us know when we've got blind spots within the community, when we're missing something that's really critically important. In fact, one of the things we heard about from a parent this week, which we've heard before and we are trying to pay attention to this, is that the district talks a lot about sporting achievements, but not a lot about academic achievements. And could we pay more attention to the academic achievements of our youth within the school system? And I would I would also just as another thing to point out is the the girls teams at East Lansing are just as excellent as the boys teams in most circumstances. So they're just it's always great to cover good winning teams. I don't think anyone would disagree about that. Speaking of schools, Emily, you and I got some information about kindergarten at uh, Marvel Elementary. And this actually may be the last question we have time for, but, but go ahead, take us into that issue. 
Uh, sure. So at the September 13th school board meeting, I was away from my Eli work. So Alice kindly stepped in and went to the school board meeting for me. And during public comments, a parent spoke about how the classrooms at Marble, the new building, were smaller than the classrooms in the old building, which had been demolished. The number of students was larger than it previously was, and that they also have less help because of the pandemic. So I asked Superintendent Lyko, what were the rooms actually smaller? And she confirmed that they were. She said that the old marble buildings, kindergarten classrooms were bigger than the kindergarten classrooms in many other buildings. In reconstructing the new elementary schools, they attempted at least some sort of comparability among the buildings. So the marble ones wound up being smaller, but marble also has the highest enrollment among kindergartners. They are each of the elementary schools minus Red Cedar have two classes. Red Cedar has one kindergarten class and two classes of young fives. Marble's classes are 25 and 26 students each. Donnelly has 25 and 25 but for example, Glenn Karen has 20 and 21. So teachers, if their class size, I think for kindergarten is above 22 students, they do get compensated more. Um, but this parent at school board expressed concern that the children are cramped in during a pandemic. And these are children who, because of the pandemic, hadn't been socialized in large groups. They might not have gone to daycare. They might not have gone to preschool. And now this is their first time interacting in a larger group. And then the added caveat of volunteers are no longer allowed in the classroom. So I know Alice had told me once upon a time she had volunteered in her son's classroom and you might help getting them to do things like line up or share with each other or get the crayon from the crayon box. Now, because of COVID, those volunteers aren't allowed in and it's a group of students who might not have had a chance to practice these skills yet. Yeah, it's kind of a perfect storm in some ways. And I really feel for these teachers and the kids in these classrooms because they really do have a situation where a lot of these kids simply have not been in preschool. So they haven't learned to interact with other kids. They haven't learned things like lining up and how lunchroom works and all of that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, you have these teachers who in the past would have had a lot of parental support, a lot of um, student intern support from MSU, support from the paraprofessionals moving from classroom to classroom. And all of that stuff has been sort of shut down in an attempt to stop disease transmission from getting transmitted all over the place. And so, wow, I mean, that is just really hard. I have to say, I I do not envy these teachers who have 26 five-year-olds who are not used to having to deal with other five-year-olds. That's really difficult. Right. So my understanding from Superintendent Lyko is there are power professionals in the classroom. If there's a specific student who needs the assistant of a power professional, she was unsure with the interns because that would be handled by the principals. But the Decision on volunteers will be re-examined once vaccination is available to students under 12. Because at this point, students in pretty much roughly K through five or six aren't eligible for the vaccine yet. Gotcha. Well, I know you'll keep covering this for us, Emily. So thank you so much. Yes, I will. Um, well, I wanted to thank all of our listeners again for joining us and giving a listen to our answers and tidbits that we've garnered from our Ask Eli column. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer, 
you're welcome to visit eastlansinginfo.news and look for the contact us information. And we look forward to answering all the questions that you send our way. Thank you. East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.